If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We come to a, uh, uh, a wonderful, wonderful portion of the book of Romans today. And as we're turning there, you know, I want to uh, just, just draw our attention to the nation of Israel in human history. I mean, think about this, friends. There has been no nation, no people group in the history of the world that has been more noticeable, more scrutinized, more persecuted, more oppressed, who have fallen down and picked themselves up time and time and time again. All eyes over all centuries have been on the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. And I've said this many times before, and I'll say it again. No nation... In the history of the world, no nation has assembled in an area of the world and then been scattered across the globe only to be regathered in that same part of the world. The Holy Land, the land of Canaan, Jerusalem. No nation but Israel. Is that true of? And what does that tell us? I mean, what does that tell an average person who just kind of looks at looks at the map and says, that's really peculiar about that nation. I wonder why that nation has been set apart from all other nations in that way. Friends, it should be obvious to both believer and unbeliever alike that there is something unique about the people of Israel. There is something special about the Jewish people. And in fact, our Bibles give the perfect answer to what is so special about the nation of Israel. The Bible declares that the Jews are God's chosen people. That He pulled them out of Ur of the Chaldeans and set them apart in a land all their own. That they might be a witness of the glory of God, a witness to the nations of the truth of God. Now, they didn't always play their part. And in fact, today, uh, it could be said that much of Israel is is really opposed to God. In fact, if you were to do a a poll, there have been polls and surveys in Israel proper itself in modern times. And they even ask the question, do you believe in God? In some polls, it's been up to 50 percent where the people say no. I don't even believe in him anymore. And yet, something about the nation of Israel has caught the attention of the world for centuries over. And indeed, friends, when we come to Romans chapter 9, Paul is now going to address this nation that cannot escape any of our notice. That in fact is in the news today. Who time and time again have been a people of historic substance and value in the eyes of the world. And here in Romans 9, Paul is going to address something that he has to address. Here in Romans 9, he comes to the point, after having discussed how God has elected How God has chosen, how He's predestined us to justification, sanctification, to glorification. How He's called out even the people of Israel. 
to go on to conformity to his son. And also he's he's opened it up to the Gentiles that they also might believe in Christ and go on to conformity to Jesus Christ. But in particular, Paul now comes to the question by his critics, a question in which they are asking the Jewish critics, that is, they're saying, look, Paul, I, I don't get it. If if it is true that God has chosen us, if he's elected us, if he's predestined us, then why is it, Paul, that you are saying, as he has been saying, that the Jewish people in the first century have largely missed the Messiah? How is it, Paul's critics wonder, if God has made all these promises, all these covenants, all these things... Specific to the Jew, how is it then that all of us have missed it? That the vast majority of us have missed Jesus the Messiah and are missing presently the blessings of God. Paul in Romans 9 answers that charge. It's a significant text. And as we get into chapters 9, 10, and 11, friends, I I will uh, give you forewarning. These are some of the most difficult chapters in all of Scripture. I ask for uh, your grace as, uh, as I try to walk us through it, because I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not perfect, uh, it's a, I'm going to give my best interpretation. The one that I've been prayerfully considering and studying over. But these portions of Scripture, they're difficult. They're hard to get through. But in them, as we go through them together, I think we're going to learn a lot about God's plan for Israel. And that's the title of the series here. The title of our next series of messages, which will carry us in into the fall, really. We'll have a little uh, break at late August, early September. But throughout most of the fall, we're going to be talking about God's plan for Israel. And part one today is God's promises remain for the Israel within Israel. You say, what does that mean? Well, let's turn to Romans chapter 9. And would you please stand as we read uh, this passage of Scripture together? And then we will uh, dissect it verse by verse. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go to 13 today. It's it's a hard break, but we have to break somewhere. Verse 1, Paul writes, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are the fathers, and from whom... According to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Verse six. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that at this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Verse 10. And not only this. 
But when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to Rebecca, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You may be seated. Get to verse 13 in a little bit here. That got everyone's attention. You want to go backwards? Start verse 13, go to 1. No. Hey, verse 1 again. Verse 1. Let's take a look at it. Paul starts off this, this incredibly important portion of Romans. He says this, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. What's Paul saying here? What's he saying? You know, what, what he is saying here is no different than what every parent thinks of their children. What he is saying here is no different than what you think of your kids. Were you to know of a calamity that might befall your children, would you not wish from the depth of your being that that calamity would come upon you and not upon your son or your daughter? Of course. Of course. If I knew that that something awful was going to happen to my son, something terrible was going to happen to my daughter, I would pray and I would beseech God Moment by moment of the day, Lord, let that calamity fall on me. Let it pass over my children and let it fall on me. That is the cry of every parent, of everyone who has a vested interest in the one that they love. How does Paul feel about the Israelites? How does he feel about the Jews? He loves them. He loves them. He loves them so much that he is willing to have the calamity that they are nearing to fall on him. That he might be the recipient of it and not his countrymen. Remember, Paul is a Jew. He himself has come out of Israel. He himself was once a Pharisee. He himself once rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road. And Paul believed in Christ. The scales fell from his eyes. He realized that Jesus was the Messiah. And from then on, he went forth declaring to all his brothers and sisters, his fellow Jews, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the hoped for one, the Redeemer of Israel. And Paul here in, in Romans, 1, uh, Romans 9, 1, 1, 2, and 3, he, like any parent, like anyone who loves those children and who loves their family, he is requesting, if it be at all possible, Lord, that any calamity that might fall on the Jews, that it would fall on me. That word accursed there 
Uh, we, we instinctually think it means eternal condemnation. And in this case, it, it probably does. Um, but there's also context in the book of Acts where that word simply means to die, physically die. And so Paul might be wishing upon himself physical death that the Jews might avoid their death in a sense. But uh, we could go either way on that. The word there is anathema, but I want you to make, make note that it does not always mean eternal condemnation. It can mean simply physical destruction. In this case, however, it's probably more uh, toward the, the idea of eternal damnation. Paul is saying, I will, take the, I will take the blunt of the judgment, Lord. Put it upon me, if it at all be possible, which of course it isn't. We're all individually accountable before God. We can't pay penance for someone else's sin. That's not a component of Christian doctrine. That's not a component of the Scriptures. We cannot atone for the sin of another. The only one who could do that was the Lord Jesus Christ, who took the sins of the whole world upon Himself. But Paul goes on to discuss the Jews and, and, what, and what they have as the Jewish people. He says, who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises. Verse five, of whom are the fathers or the patriarchs and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. There's a lot of descriptors here of of what Paul uh, is saying about the people of the Jews. There's a lot of descriptions, a lot of blessings that they have inherently as God's chosen people. Paul says they've been adopted. And this is a little bit different than the sense of adoption we saw in Romans 8, because in Romans 8, adoption meant that you had believed in Christ and thus were a son or daughter of God. But here, adoption really has the idea of just choosing corporately. They've been chosen corporately as God's people. They've been adopted as God's family. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory. They not only have seen the glory of God, Moses on Mount Sinai, but they also were to be reflectors of God's glory. They were to tell the world of God's glory. The covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and so on. We have so many promises, so many promises in the Scriptures from God to Israel. The giving of the law. The service of God or the worship of God and the promises. So all these things, all these blessings here pertain to Israel. They pertain to the Jews. These were the same blessings given to them in the Old Testament, in the time of Abraham, in the time of Moses. God had made promises to them. He had set them apart as a special, special people. And he says, of whom, of these Israelites, are the fathers or the patriarchs, the patriarchs, all the great men of the faith, Jewish men, all the great matriarchs from whom came the seed, Jesus Christ, great women of old, Sarah, Rebecca, many others. The Jewish people have had a, a glorious heritage. They've been adopted. They've, they've not only been recipients, but reflectors of God's glory. That's what, they're in, that's what they have, in, have intended to have and be. And from whom, Paul says, Christ came. Out of the people of Israel 
According to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And by the way, this is one of the few times in the New Testament, one of perhaps only two times where Paul explicitly says that Jesus is God. And so you might want to underline that this is one of the most explicit references in which Paul uh, appropriates the word God to Christ. One of two. Christ came, the Messiah has come from the Jews. But herein lies the problem. You see, Paul has remember remember who remember what Romans is. Romans is a letter. And Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. And he wrote a letter to a church that was uh, biracial. Uh, there were Gentiles. There were Jews. There were men and women and children from all over. I mean, Rome was the center of the first century world. And at the church in Rome, uh, at the house churches in, in, in Rome, there, there was just a variety of different people. You had Gentile Christians. You had Jewish Christians. You had some coming and wondering what whether or not trying to figure out whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. Others uh, just coming as, as seekers into these house churches, finding learning more about what the Christians had to say about life. And and Paul here. In writing this letter, he's trying to uh, bring about some reconciliation between these groups, between these peoples. Uh, certainly, the, the Jews would have looked, the Jewish Christians would have looked at the Gentile Christians and thought, my goodness, they're, they're rising up in so many numbers. Like, the, the Gentiles were, were overwhelming the Jewish Christians. There were more Gentile Christians by this day than there were Jewish Christians. And yet, the Jews felt that, you know, that there's something, but there's something special about us. We were chosen by God. We were given all these promises, these covenants. What is our role here? And then, these Jewish Christians, they'd look out at their brothers and sisters in Israel and throughout the land and say, Lord, why is it that that only a small remnant of us have gotten it? Why is it that only a, a small portion of us have even come to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah? And the same is true today. How many ethnic Jews would you say believe that Jesus is the Messiah today? I would argue it's a very low percentage. Same was true in the first century. And so the Christians, the Jewish Christians started thinking, Paul, has God abandoned us? Has he abandoned us? We were chosen by God. That's what all of the scriptures tell us. And yet, the vast majority of our people have not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. What then becomes of God's promises to Israel? What becomes of it? What becomes of these promises? Friends, this is no small point. You see, we read Romans 9 and many of us probably think, Okay, this has to do with Israel, and this doesn't have to do with me. So I'll learn it and I'll study it, but man, this is going to be hard to apply to my life, right? Many of us would approach Romans 9 maybe in that respect. I would argue just the opposite. 
You see, what God has done with Israel is extremely important to what we think and believe about God. Consider this point by Douglas Moo, a preeminent New Testament scholar. He writes, Israel's unbelief of the gospel is a matter of significance not only to the Roman Christians or to first century Christians generally, but to all Christians continue. God has adopted Israel, bound her to Him with His covenants and His promises. Do these now mean nothing? Has God revoked these blessings and gone back on His word to Israel? And if God has indeed reneged on His earlier word, the consequences were dire for more than Jews. Why? For how could Christians trust such a God to fulfill His promises to them? This is why Romans 9 matters. This is why Romans 9, 10, and 11 matter to you and to me today. Because if God has made these promises to Israel, and yet we looked at the Jews in the first century, and we saw people who largely had not embraced Christ, who largely were not recipients of the blessings, and then 2,000 years later, here we are in 2010, and we look around and we go, this is really weird. Israel still hasn't accepted her Messiah. Israel is still not the recipients of the promises that God has made. We should rightly ask the question, are the promises still in effect? Are they still enforceable? Does God, is He going to make good on them? And this matters for you and for me. You know why? Because if the answer is no, if the answer is, eh, God kind of changed that promise. He kind of fudged it a little. Eh, he, kind of, he said it, but you know, don't worry about it. Forget about it. If that is our response to the promises of God in the Old Testament, then how can you and I trust the promises of God in the New Testament? Right? If we... If Israel can look upon the promises in the Old Testament and think, oh, are they broken? Then you and I, when we look at the promises that we've been told, we might also think, is God going to make good on those? Is His promise 100% Guaranteed? I'll save the suspense. Yes. Turn to verse 6. Verse 6. Paul continues. He says, But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Alright, what's he saying here? What is going on? Well, for starters, we should know that mainstream Judaism in the first century, and quite frankly, uh, quite a, a considerable amount of Orthodox Judaism today, teaches that Jews are eternally blessed and saved by God by virtue of the fact that they are a descendant of Abraham. Let me say that again. The mainstream view in the first century, and quite frankly, a viewpoint of many Orthodox Jews today, is that well, we are saved and blessed by God 
because we are ethnic descendants of Abraham. Now, Paul takes great pains to disprove this point. Turn over to Romans 2. I don't have it for you on the screen. Turn over to Romans chapter 2 and notice verse 28. Paul writes this in Romans 2 verse 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So what's Paul saying there? He's saying, look, true Israel, the real people of God, are those who have had their hearts cut by the living God. True Israel are those who have believed in Christ and who have had their hearts regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Circumcised by the Spirit, if you will. And Paul vigorously contended in his letter that there were many Jews, indeed the vast majority, who were not, who were not eternally saved. It was a bold claim for a Jew to make about other fellow Jews. And Paul admitted that, but one that required uh, certainly a bit of and one that required a bit of clarification. Now, Paul is disputing that mainstream idea that we are saved because of our ethnic heritage. And of course, he incurred a lot of criticism for his stance on that. It went against the tide. It went against the grain of the first century Israelites. And among the criticisms leveled against Paul was one in particular that Paul encountered time and time again. And this criticism went something like this. Paul's critics would say, hey, you know what, Paul? If it is true that most of your fellow countrymen are not God's children, then what are we to make of the Lord's promises to us? Surely... If God has made an eternal covenant with our nation, and indeed he has, then either he's going to make good on it or he's a liar. Yet you say, Paul, that the vast majority of us, that we are not even children of God. How can this be? Either you are wrong or God, his promises to us are lies. Paul is being leveled this criticism. He's being given this accusation. He's saying they're basically telling him, look, Paul, you have to decide either God's promises are good and we're in great standing or God's promises are not good and and he's a liar. So which is it? And Paul says, neither A nor B. I'll give you the real answer, he says. Notice what he says in verse six. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, God's promises to Israel remain intact because true Israel consists of those who are children of God by faith and not those who are merely descendants of Abraham. God's election of Israel in eternity past never entailed the eternal salvation of every historical Jew. And I wanted to bring up that point. Let's go ahead and... uh, uh, Go to the next slide there. Sorry, and then the next. There we go. Sorry about that, Joyce. God's election of Israel in eternity past never entailed the eternal salvation of every historical Jew. I I meant to put that on your outline and I, I didn't get it on there. But I want us to note that point very clearly. God's election of Israel in eternity past never entailed 
the eternal salvation of every historical Jew. When Paul says in verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, his point is that the nation of Israel, the true people of Israel, I should say, is not the sum of all ethnic Jews. There is an Israel within Israel. And the real Israel are those who are the children of God. Now, Paul's use of the term children is significant here. And he uses it time and time again. We see it in verse 7. We see it in verse 8. Time and time again. Children, uh, children of God. Children of the promise. What does this term for children even mean? Well, if we go back to Romans 8, we see that children of God invariably meant those who were justified. Those who were eternally saved. In Romans chapter 8, children of God very naturally meant those persons who are saved by faith in Christ. And it is with that in mind that Paul brings that phrase in to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, 6 and 7 is Paul's fundamental thesis that not all ethnic Jews are children of God. Or to put it another way, not every Israelite will obtain eternal salvation. Some will and some won't. And this is what he says in verse 7. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now, if you're... A casual reading of this will be very confusing, as it was to me, as it was to anyone who just... Reads over this quickly. Paul's making the point that to his Jewish critics, the critics are saying, Paul, uh, we're saved because we're Jews. We're saved because of our ethnicity, because we're descendants from Abraham. And Paul says, no, you're not. That's not at all a factor. In fact, the only way you're a child of God is whether or not you believe, whether you're a child of the promise, whether you've been elected. And then he goes on in verse 7, 8, and 9 to talk about their ancestry and where they've come from. You might think, is that even, is Paul arguing for his point or their point? Which way is he going on this? It might be a bit confusing as Paul, as Paul begins to respond to his critics. But keep this in mind. The end of, chapter, uh, the end of verse 7 is a quotation from Genesis 21, in which the Lord reminds Abraham and, uh, that his promises to Abraham will be fulfilled through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Now, we remember the story. Abraham uh, uh, wanted a son desperately, and uh, Hagar... The, bond, the Egyptian bondservant uh, was uh, his way of having a son. And he, and, he, and he departed from God's purposes and had a son, Ishmael, by the Egyptian bondservant, Hagar. But then later, Abraham was also able to, uh, with Sarah, conceive a son, the son of the promise, Isaac. And so what we see at the end of verse 7 is a quotation from Genesis 21 in which God has made... A promise to Abraham. He's told him something. And when God makes a promise, we can naturally infer that he has decreed that promise. 
to, to, to accomplish its purpose. And of course, if God's chosen something to accomplish its purpose, we might also say that God has elected it or that he's predestined it to happen. Therefore, when we see the term the word of promise in verses eight and nine, we should be thinking in terms of God's election. Isaac is described as the child of the promise, which is another way of saying that God elected or he chose Isaac, calling him to justification, to sanctification, to glorification. And based on the two categories of thinking in verse six and seven, Paul also implied that God did not choose Ishmael in this manner. One son, Isaac, was a child of God, a child of God's promise of election, while the other son, Ishmael, was merely a physical descendant of Abraham and therefore not part of true Israel. And that is why Paul says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Paul's point in bringing out the lineage of Isaac does not support his Jewish critics argument that, see, we're saved because of our lineage. That's not Paul. That's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul's talking about is God's choice, God's promise, God's election. And what he's making clear from the story in Genesis 21 is that there were two sons of Abraham Two sons who proceeded, who descended from Abraham, the great patriarch of Israel, Isaac and Ishmael, but only one, only one constituted true Israel. The child of the promise. And a promise means that God decreed it that way. And if God decreed it, he elected it to be that way. One of the two sons was of true Israel, while the other was merely a descendant of Abraham. Paul's making a dividing line here in the Jewish argument that all descendants are saved. God's word, his promises to Israel remain intact. God's choosing of Israel never entailed the election of every physical Jew unto salvation. And Doug Moo goes on to say in his uh, commentary on Romans, he says, belonging to God's true spiritual people has always been based on God's gracious and sovereign call and not on ethnic identity. Now, among the points Paul is making here in Romans nine is that salvation is not based on birthright, but on God's electing grace. But salvation by ethnic descent remained a major talking point for Paul's critics, and it's likely You know, they they still were hung up. The critics were on this idea that Paul were saved by our by fact, by the fact that we're sons of Abraham. And they, they heard this first point that Paul was making, that Isaac and Ishmael point. But they may have found this example to be insufficient. Why? Well, they might counter, well, Paul, that doesn't quite add up because, you see, Ishmael was not a, 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 a real Jewish man. You see, Ishmael was the son of Hagar, and she was an Egyptian. So, Paul, I mean, we're still going to stand firm on this idea that all ethnic Jews are saved. Because Ishmael, he wasn't quite fully Jewish. 
Can you give us a better example? Can you give us a better argument, Paul? Is there something else that you have in your, uh, in your toolbox here to demonstrate what you're saying is true? And so Paul goes on to list another argument. And this one is going to be difficult for his critics to dispute. He, he writes in verse 10, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And again, we'll get to verse 13 in a moment. As Paul begins this second example, now remember what he's proving. Paul is proving, he's demonstrating the point, that you're not saved because of your ethnicity. You're not saved because you're a Jew. You're saved by virtue of the fact that you are a child of of God. A child of the promise. Elected by God. A believer in Jesus Christ. And this is his second example of why this is so. And this is one that will be harder for his critics to avoid. As Paul says in this second example of God's election, he knows uh, that none of his critics can deny the Jewish ethnicity of these two sons. You see, Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Both were authentically Jewish. Twin sons, one right after the other. Both from the same father, both from the same mother. Descendants of Abraham, of Isaac. And yet only one of them was sovereignly chosen by God. Only one of them was the son of the promise. Now, in keeping with the categories that Paul has started with back in verse 6 and 7, we are on safe ground if we assume that Paul is making a contrast between Jews by ethnicity and Jews of the promise. Remember that Paul has said that not all Israel, not all ethnic Israel is of Israel is of the Israel of the promise, children of the promise. Not all Israel is of Israel. In other words, true Israel is composed of those Jews who are called by God. Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham, but Isaac was the child of the promise, the Jew who was chosen and elected by God. Similarly, here we see two sons, Esau and Jacob. And by, the, and by the implication here, by the flow of Paul's argument, the implication is that Esau was merely a descendant of Isaac, whereas Jacob was the child of the promise, the Jew who was chosen, the Jew who was elected by God. Now, Paul's discussion of Esau in Romans 9, the way in which he puts this story in its framework makes it exceedingly difficult to make a case for Esau's salvation. In truth, there are, uh, there are some uh, prominent theologians, many of whom, uh, some 
some of whom I have high respect for, who, I, uh, who differ with me on this point. They, they try to make the point that there are other indicators in Scripture where God shows mercy on Esau in Genesis. And then in Hebrews 12, where Esau is, is viewed in a less uh, vehement light, if you will. And so they, they try to make the argument that Esau uh, is potentially eternally saved. But that would fly in the face of Paul's argument in Romans 9. That would fly directly in the face of Paul's argument in Romans 9. His entire argument in Romans 9 is to say there are two Israels. There's one Israel that are simply the descendants of Abraham. Jews by ethnicity. Nothing more, nothing less. And then there's another Israel. An Israel that that is a descendant of Abraham, but that is more than that. An Israel that is the children of the promise. The children of God. Chosen by God. Elected by God. And these over here, this Israel is not this Israel. Those who claim salvation simply by ethnicity, they're missing it. Not all Israel is of Israel. What really matters is whether or not you are a child of the promise, elected by God. And Paul's discussion of Esau and Jacob in Romans 9 makes it exceedingly difficult to make a case for Esau's salvation. Paul is concerned with proving that some Jews are a part of true Israel, while other Jews are not a part of true Israel. And in this example, it seems clear that Paul's point is that Jacob is the true son of the promise, whereas Esau was merely a son by ethnicity. Had Paul thought otherwise, he would not have used this as an example to make his point. And now we come to verse 13 where it says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You know, this is a difficult quotation. It's taken from Malachi chapter 1. And in Malachi 1, uh, the terms Jacob and Esau are actually used to refer to Jacob to, to the nation of Israel and Esau to the nation of Edom. And so in Malachi, those terms refer not to the persons, Jacob and Esau, who had long since died, but to the nations of Israel who were loved by God and Edom who were hated by God. What does these terms loved and hated mean? Well, friends, it, it probably has a lot less to do with uh, uh, an emotional connection that we might think it does. Um, some would argue that it has a lot to do with uh, the, the idea of loved and loved less. In other words, um, in Genesis chapter, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 29, uh, Jacob is said uh, to have loved uh, Rachel and hated Leah. Okay, he had he had two wives, Rachel and Leah, and it's said in Genesis 29 that that Jacob loved Rachel but hated Leah. Well, the point there is probably not that he hated Leah. It's that he didn't love her nearly as much as he loved Rachel. And uh, the same can be true in the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, look, if you want to follow me, you must forsake your family. And he goes on to say, you must hate father and mother if you're going to be a follower of me. 
Well, did Jesus literally advocate that we hate our mother and father? No. His point there was that we should, in comparison to God, we should look upon our family and say, you know what, the Lord, He takes ultimate priority. He takes ultimate supremacy in my life. And on the one hand, if, if I were to compare my love to the Lord, it would be almost like hatred for father and mother. That's how stark the difference is in my priorities. In our priorities, Jesus says. And so that's a, that's a potential way of looking at this love-hate relationship. But a better way of looking at it is just the fact of how it's expressed. How it's expressed is that the love of Jacob was expressed in God electing Jacob. God choosing Jacob. God pulling Jacob out and setting him apart. And the hatred that we see of Esau is, is exemplified in the fact that he did not choose Esau. He rejected Esau. He did not choose him as the son of the promise. Did not choose him as a child of God. As one theologian puts it, if God's love of Jacob consists in his choosing Jacob to be the seed who would inherit the blessings promised to Abraham, then God's hatred of Esau is best understood to refer to God's decision not to bestow this privilege on Esau. Love and hate are not here emotions that God feels, but actions that he carries out. Let me say that again. Love and hate here are not emotions that God feels, but actions that he carries out. And these are his actions. This is verse 11 for the children, not yet being born, not even being born, nor having done any good nor evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. We're going to get more in the, in the next part in Romans 9 next week. We're going to get more into this idea of God's election and God's uh, choosing. And I know for many of us, we, uh, we come across that, that concept. We come across the idea of, of God electing some and not electing others. And we really, uh, we have a, an incredibly unsettled feeling about that. We know that Romans 8 teaches us that for whom he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he justified, whom he justified, you know, he, he called and glorified. We see the pattern in the scriptures. We see the term election time and time again. We see that God chooses time and time again. And yet, in the deepest parts of our soul, we still have an unsettledness about that idea, about that concept. Friends, I want you to, um, to hang tight on that unsettled feeling. Next week, we're going to be dealing with that unsettledness in a, in a fuller fashion. And we are going to be grappling with it head on and asking the question, is it fair of God to do this? Is it right of God to do that? Is it just of God to do this? But I want to conclude today with, again, the question of why, why does all this matter? Why does what we've learned in Romans 9 matter today? I want to say this. Go ahead. Paul is defending. Remember this. Don't miss this. Paul is defending the character and the integrity of God and the promises he makes. If God breaks promises to Israel, how much more might he break his promises to us? You see, the whole point of this first part in Romans 9 is, is the Jews are saying, look, Paul, either God's broken his promise to us or, or we're saved and you're wrong. And Paul's saying it's neither A nor B. 
God has kept His promises to Israel, but not all Israel are of Israel. And so Paul has defended God's character and His integrity and has defended the promises that God has made to Israel. He says, look, they are coming due. They, God is going to make good on them. Thankfully, Paul has successfully proved that God remains fully committed to His promises to Israel. And this is the point for us. So also, He will make good on the promises He has made to us, namely, to give us eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 9 matters, friends, because if God has reneged on His promises to Israel, how can we have confidence in Him? How can we have confidence in Him? And we see all these promises. And we look at Israel today and we say, where are these blessings? I don't see them. I don't see Israel turning to Christ. I don't see Israel blessed. I see Israel persecuted and suffering and hurting. And every time I look at the Jewish people, I see them being oppressed, beaten down. Does the Bible make sense? Paul says, you bet it does. The promises to Israel remain intact because not all Israel is of Israel. And when the Messiah comes again, when Jesus comes back and the nation of Israel looks upon Him and realizes their Messiah, the Israel within Israel will receive the promises that God has made to them. We can be confident in His promises to us. He has not reneged on them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, Lord, we, we labor through passages like these. Father, it's, uh, they're not easy to understand. And for some of us, uh, Father, they, they may be so complicated and, and, and frustrating. We may feel that we're uh, having more questions than we are answers. But Lord, let us settle in our hearts this. That you are a keeper of promises. We declare, Lord, that you have not reneged on any promise you have made. Neither promise to Israel, neither promise to us. No promise you have made, Lord. No promise will you turn your back on. And we affirm as your people that we remain fully confident that You will make good on the promises You have made, not only to Your people Israel, but to us who have believed on Your Son, Jesus Christ. We know that we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven because we know, Lord, that You are a keeper of Your promises. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.